I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We are broadcasting live from West Palm Beach at the International Leadership Association Conference. This year's guests talk about their work as global leaders and practitioners to advance the field of leadership. So as we think about leadership for a better world and the idea that of democracy on the run, which we're just starting to talk about here, can you speak a little bit about why we think democracy is on the run and how that connects to leadership for a better world? I think the first one is about um, basically numbers. If you look at the Freedom House rankings of countries, then mm -hmm. in the late 1990s, when at the end of history, it was known back then, uh, there were almost 70% of the world's countries which were categorized as democracies. Now it slipped back into the high 40s. So that is a reason for that. And of course, you can say always, you know, talk about how we define democracy, but you know, that's a starting point. Mm -hmm. Then the second problem about that is that we tend to talk about leaders and say leaders are good if we actually like what they do. And I think that's a, you know, I think this fundamental problem about politics is if you underestimate your opponent. My working definition of leadership is that you've got people who have a vision, who can turn the vision into a plan, who can implement that plan, and who can then communicate it. And if you look around at many of the leaders that we see, Erdogan in Turkey, the late Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Viktor Orban in Hungary, then most of these people have a quite a well-defined vision. They've uh, had some setbacks. They've then learned from those setbacks. They've developed quite effective and ruthless plans to get things through. Uh, they have implemented policies without worrying about opposition. They go basically bulldoze through. And then subsequently, they have communicated that through the media they then they normally control. So by that definition of leadership, if it, you know, people who can identify mm -hmm. things and implement them and communicate them, then most of these leaders are very good at what they do. So therefore, I think the, uh, if I could be sort of highbrowed and, uh, and talk about, um, you know, Machiavelli instead of Metallica, perhaps. In the Machiavelli, when he wrote The Prince, didn't write it as a handbook to be evil, but just basically saying, this is what we're up against. So if you're a progressive Republican in those days, that meant to be on the left. And in political theory, that's what it means. And if, if you have those progressive ideas that Machiavelli had, then you need to describe, you need to learn from uh, the people who are probably not quite so, so palatable. So that's what I do. Uh, in my interest in, in what I call the death by a thousand cuts, where democracies break down, not as a result of a coup, but sort of little by little. The leadership impact of that is that we can actually learn from some of the bad guys. We also, the, the opposite side, needs to have a vision for the future. We need to be able to turn that into a plan, implement it, and communicate it. We need to learn the trick. It's interesting that Woodrow Wilson, I'm sorry, I'm sounding very much mm -hmm. like an academic now, but for course, <laughs> a, a president of the United States, but also the first professor of political science in this country, wrote a famous paper about bureaucracy. And, and, uh, and he said, well, the problem about bureaucracy, it's uh, a lot of people say that's a German idea, that their Kaiser is not very mm -hmm. uh, democratic. And he says, that's just a bit like, you don't hate knives because there are murderers who use knives. You can use a knife for good things. So I think what we can learn from from dictators, we can probably learn some of the of, of the tricks of the trade. We just have to make sure they're used for for good reason. Are we setting the thesis that democracy is better? 
I think democracy is better, and that's okay. why I can come back okay. to the team and turn up on simply the best. Because it's, it's interesting if you go back, and this will be the historical element, if you go back to Aristotle, for example, the founder of political science, 400 BC, then he says democracy is based on the idea of the common meal. So mm. everybody brings little plates of food, then we'll mm -hmm. have a much better meal than if only the best chef prepares all of it. And uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a guy called Vasilius of Padua, who said that the ordinary people may not know best, but if the prince decides or the assembly decides, mm -hmm. in Italy they had some sort of democracy at the time, then we could put it out to the people afterwards, and they will be sure to find certain faults in that. And the thing about democracy is democracy is not only better because people don't get tortured and sent away. It's also because in democracies you tend to have higher levels of inequality. The more democracy you have, the less inequality you have. Um, also, the more economic growth you have, the less corruption. So empirically speaking, or from a utilitarian point of view, democracies are better. But it's also a matter of political philosophy. You think that everybody has an equal and, uh, and everybody can, should bring to it. It's not that it, the meal gets better. It's also that it's right that everybody brings to the table because it creates community. Now that's being challenged by the ones who say, well, I know everything well and I'm a very stable genius, as a certain politician recently said. Most of these very stable geniuses, you know, sometimes they may be incredibly intelligent and they have good ideas, but there will always be certain ideas that they, they forget about and they always have a sort of a clique and yes men around them, it tends to be men. And then in the long run, these systems don't, don't last. So, so when Quincy Adams, uh, no, it's uh, John Adams, uh, not, John. Uh, not the young, younger person, he said all democracies commit suicide. In the end, all dictatorships break down as well. It's just mm -hmm. that dictatorship doesn't necessarily lead to the rebirth of democracy. Most dictatorships are replaced by other dictators. Okay. So. So then what do we do to improve the success of democracy? If they're on the run and they're the best system, I assume you have a hypothesis about what needs to change. Well, first of all, what needs to change is we need to, the people who are uh, Democrats need to be, you know, stand up and be counted and acknowledge the problem. You know, if, if you want to be a resilient person and you don't, so people actually if I use a different example. Most of the people who were in the concentration camps back in the day, I was mm -hmm. a very radical example. Uh, there were people who said, oh, it's going to be okay. And then, you know, it can't be so bad. And, you know, concentration camp is concentration camp. Those people did not last a month. The ones who survived the concentration camps were the ones who had a clear assessment of this is not very good. Uh, and uh, and also are willing to use all available means to, okay. to to take it in. So there's, I think the French have a word called bricolage, which is for basically sort of a, a shop that sells everything. And you need to be a bricoleur. You need to be somebody who takes in bits and pieces mm -hmm. and is mm -hmm. willing to do things. And then democracies need to you know communicate. They you know as Democrats we need or those people who are Democrats with it. With and when you say Democrat, you don't mean Democrat Republican. You mean people in democracy. No, no. We've got to talk about the rest of the okay. world. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, if I'm, they may say so, being slightly rude here. So uh, the rest of the world, you can be a Republican on the left, and in the rest of the world, you can be a Democrat on the right. The Liberal Democrat Party <laughs> in Japan is not a. In, if the Liberal Democrat Party was in America, it would be a far left. But in America, in Japan, that's on the far right. Uh, so <laughs> the world is a difficult place. I was so, just asking because yes. we do have listeners around the world yes. to clarify the yes. term. So, so basically, if you're a, a Democrat, is somebody who believes that there should be free and competitive election. Everybody should have 
as far as possible an equal say. They shouldn't shouldn't be a result of how rich they are. It shouldn't be a result of how much education they have, and there shouldn't be oppression of minorities. If you believe there shouldn't be oppression of minorities, and you think everybody should have an equal worth, then you are a Democrat. Okay. You can also say if you can get rid of the government without overthrowing it mm-hmm. with weapons and so on. So that sort of system, you, we need to be we stand up and be counted and say, well, that system has mm-hmm. developed much more. We've become much, much richer. For example, Amartya Sen, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist and from India, said the reason why India is far better than China is that we've never had a famine. We've never had a famine because we've always had a democracy. And you can never in a democracy allow there such situation to be so, you know, deteriorate so much that mm-hmm. you, you have a famine because the opposition party will always be there and say, well, look, this is not right, you know, get a move on. So democracy works, I think, in, in the American term when Madison talked about ambition should counteract ambition. And it's sort of the... the it, 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 checks and balances. Yeah, but also the it's a robust debate and say, well, you got this really wrong. I can do it better. And mm-hmm. it's that sort of the, the challenge that you can always be thrown out of office. You can always get the Westcals out. Mm-hmm. Um, so democracy is not this sort of cuddly nice thing that we all sit around and, and, and agree, because most people won't agree. It's also the agreement to disagree, the uh, intention mm-hmm. to have a pizza culture rather than a melting pot, where we allow for the different flavors to be there, but accept that there are different flavors on the pizza. As Matt's put it, inherently, this system that we think is better than any other system is inherently unstable in itself, and that's what we're looking at. We're looking at... And your question is very apposite, Maureen. What can we do about it? The so what factor. This is a a conference about leadership. It's a conference about how scholars, practitioners and policymakers can do things to make things different. If we believe that the Freedom House statistics are showing that democracy is on the wane, it's being challenged, we need to to answer the question that you posed. So in, in the workshop sessions that we're running at the conference, we're looking at some of the interesting experience from Central and Eastern Europe. We've got to learn from the fact that the transitions to democracy there are very recent Mm. and they've shown powerful examples of what can work and what works less well. We need to look at the reality that we like democracy when it generates the decisions we want, (laughs) but we're pretty naff about it when we don't like the results. And Mm. then we start pointing at populist movements, at mob rule and so forth. Mm So, as, as Matt's pointed out, there are some real things that we need to understand about this real system if we want to nurture it and preserve it without pretending that it's going to be a panacea for all the problems of the world. The statistics that show that we have a more socially just world in democratic systems are pretty problematic statistics. You have to go a long way to find them and unpick them. It's not abundantly clear that's the case in the most democratic places has some of the most dreadful social injustices which part of the seeds of the destruction that Matt referred to Adams's notion of democratic systems becoming too democratic and then actually committing suicide are partly that partly the imperfections but we shouldn't judge the excellence and get rid of the good I think and that's that's the sort of approach we take so we've looked at some some real changes that could be brought about. We're looking in the more extended discussions at the role of education and the way we learn. We're looking at the concept of citizenship and unpacking a bit more what responsibilities might come with 
a new form of citizenship, and we're looking at trust. Because most of the imperfections in relationships between people that can't be systematized and suffer the things that Matt's highlighted, you can cope with if you have high levels of trust. If people mm-hmm. have more trust. Mm-hmm. We have a politician in the UK at the moment that sought not to trust experts anymore. There's an anti-expert move. What's all that about? That reflects, of course, one of the imperfections in the mm. system. So we have people who know what they're doing, who are scholars and objectively driven by evidence and searching, mm-hmm. searching evidence. And here's a politician saying, can't trust the experts, who simply wants to challenge rationality and replace it with mm. visceral feelings of what's right and what's wrong. So as we're talking about democracy on the run, Veronica comes from Eastern Europe. What would be interesting to me is to hear what's happening with new democracy. So as some people are exiting that construct, others are entering. And so what are you observing? Well, in, um, in the laboratory of uh, post-communist state transformation, there were expectations uh, towards a linear uh, democratization. Uh, So there was also a lot of wishful thinking at that time and a lot of positive attitude for all the right reasons. And in fact, the import from from outside and the implementation from above of democratic institutions, of parliamentarianism, of multi-party politics, produced surprising results for the refashioned communist elites. All of a sudden, they had to adapt to a sort of system that they were not used to. They had to negotiate, they had to build coalitions. They had to be socialized in a different type of of value system. And uh, this produced uh, unpredictable results. In the last years, it has become increasingly obvious that factors in post-communist democracy building emerging from the attitudes of the governing elites uh, have altered the predictable outcomes of institutions, uh, of formal institutions. So the preferred style of leadership uh, was a constant negotiation with the constraints of the law. And that was prior, Uh, or is that now? Uh, this was uh, the post-communist transition. Okay, okay. And this continued, this attitude, okay. this constant uh, negotiation with the okay. law and with the effects of the law continued. And we can see today the outcomes uh, of this potential scenario. Mm-hmm. So there is a certain type of personalization that emerges from the competition between informal norms and networks of authority and the building of democratic state institutions. So uh, it's, a, it's a sort of um, um, an existence, a parallel existence of the people who can have, who build this sort of aristocracy of pool, if mm-hmm. you may call it so, who uh, indeed uh, can alter the, what we, had, we were expecting at the beginning of, of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. But indeed, uh, the, um, the type of populism that we see now on the rise that could suggest that the elites appear to be inclusive, this is all only uh, in, in the rhetoric, because in mm. fact, the type of leadership excludes the people uh, that aim to be, uh, to be represented. And this is a vicious circle uh, of disenchantment, and we were discussing uh, about trust, uh, which mm. in, leads to um, a very, f- creates a very fertile ground for uh, one-party domination, who sells <laughs> the type of illusions that... Mm, uh, Okay. Yeah. And we're seeing some of that in the U.S., I think, and other countries Mm -hmm. promising that we're going to improve reality 
in a way that's not reasonable. These are troubled times, but mm -hmm. when you think about it, it's only been 30 years since these countries have started their um, mm -hmm. experience with democracy. 30 years is a very short time, so mm -hmm. there isn't really a reason to dramatize. Mm -hmm. We need to okay. have um, our uh, concerns based in reality. The institutions mm -hmm. are there and they have had an effect. And that is not something that we can, um, uh, we can challenge. They have had an effect, but there is still a weakness inherent in their mm. uh, young age. And this weakness allows for those who are in the know to profit for it, from it, mm -hmm. to play with the law and suspend the dominating power of the law. So you can, you can sh change uh, the electoral process to suit your, to suit your goals. There's this um, the possibility to change the constitution to to better integrate the interest of the privileged few mm -hmm. uh, to play with the rule of law if uh, if need be. This these sort of things are come from a, a need of instant gratification, if I can say so, mm -hmm. um, because elites are vote oriented, uh, but they're also very much uh, self oriented. Hmm. And I think the, the uh, yes, and, and I think that's important because what you need to do is you have to, again, the American thing or the Madisonian thing about gets, making sure that ambition counteracts ambition. You need to channel all that self-interest into institutions that would work like that. But it's not just about that. It's also about what I call the logic of appropriateness. You have to know what is, seems to be right. So in most countries, when you change the constitution, you need to have a consensus. You need to, the mm -hmm. reason why you need mm -hmm. a two thirds majority is because you need to make sure that everybody is on board. And in many of the, the um, Central and Eastern European countries and countries in Latin America that have gone down the route, you know, if you get in, then you sort of say, well, now it's my turn. I'm gonna change the ground rules so I can be in there forever. And I think what we've learned, and there is an element of optimism when people say, oh, it's just going to be like the 1930s and so on. Well, there are differences now uh, between the 1930s. If you look around 1920, there were about 11 new countries that just became democracies. There was mm -hmm. Austria, there was Estonia, there was Rome. Uh, on paper, uh, Romania, and then by the time of the outbreak of the uh, Second World War, only Finland and Czechoslovakia were left of the country. So all the other ones just slipped into tyranny in different sorts of ways. Back then, the military were much stronger. And if they didn't get the instant gratification that uh, Veronica was talking about, they would get rid of the governments and there would be, you know, um, some sort of military rule. So I think we've moved on from there in most of uh, some of the new consolidated democracies. They have learned from that, but they still don't have the sort of the, the spirit, the logic of appropriateness. And and if a spirit of forbearance, I would also like to talk about. In a, in a difference, in a political system, you need to have an understanding of the, your opponents aren't necessarily evil people. You can, you know, mm -hmm. co-sponsor bills. And when you start... Really? Yeah, um, well, we've had many examples here. Okay. Yes, um, and I think you read, I mean, even had these one on opioids recently. So even mm -hmm. now you, you have that. Back in the day, you had McCain, late McCain, late great mm -hmm. McCain, I would say, mm -hmm. sponsored uh, a bill to open an embassy in Vietnam with John Kerry. Uh, you know, you, uh, and, and, and McCain was McCain, John Glenn. There were some that were well known for working yes, holistically. Yes, and you need to have a, an element of that, and it's not just about the institutions. And you know, as a classic of American political thinking, was 
of Tocqueville, who was a Frenchman, who says the difference between America is that they have learned democracy by practicing democracy. Mm. And the thing about democracy is you don't necessarily get the instant gratification. You also have to learn. You have to get things wrong. And you know, you need to give people responsibility to make them responsible. And if you take responsibility away from people, they become irresponsible. In California, for example, people have voted for tax cuts. Then they realized the schools were going to, you know, going, you know, were no good. And then they reversed themselves. So the people learned from their mistakes. Um, and I think you, if democracy, if given enough time, mm-hmm. can learn from its mistakes. The problem is if you've got strong militaries and you've got many of these other things, then you don't get the time to learn from your mistakes. So you need to give it time to, to grow mm-hmm. or flourish. So what, what we learn from different perspectives, from the, the new transition democracies in Central East Europe, from Matt, from your discussions about Latin America, as well as, as, well as our reference, continuous reference to the United mm-hmm. States in its current form and to Brexit and other things. Mm-hmm is that there is an eclectic and diverse source of things happening that we need to understand. But interestingly, they point in a very similar direction. They point to the sort of imperfections that Matt's referred to, the lack of confidence, the lack of trust, the lack of awareness, the lack of a rigorous and open and an honest media, all these sorts of things mm-hmm. leading to the, I think this notion that democracy is on the run, mm-hmm. so that what happens when democracy leaves the table, something, usually something worse appears. Mm-hmm. And it may only be a short term, but it, but it happens nonetheless. So we've gone on to look at, all right, if, if there's all sorts of different reasons to be concerned, mm-hmm. let's explore them. Let's look at the experience in East and Central Europe. Let's look at the military juntas and the Marcoses and the Mussolinis. Mm. But let's see what we can do to sponsor leadership, mm. which is less likely to allow the worst to happen as a result. These things are gonna happen anyway. So I'm into a protective Mm. mode rather than Mm. a preventive mode. You cannot prevent the inherent instability of a democracy. We know it's a good system, but Mm -hmm. we know it's inherently unstable. So if you can't prevent it from transforming into something, no, you can protect. And how do you protect? You can have people who fundamentally disagree with each other, but can coexist through levels, high levels of trust. Mm-hmm. Or you can look at responsibilities of citizens to not become the silent majority, but to mobilise and to say enough is enough. And we're seeing more and more of that happening. Mm-hmm. Only last week, Matt and I were involved in a 700,000 person demonstration in London at this late stage. We're not about Brexit. About Brexit. October 2018 we are, and we're facing a, a, a departure from the European um, Union in March, 700,000. I was really disappointed, Gordon, I have to tell you. I think we should have had two or three million people. And so there are one or two million people who feel like us, but are still asylum. Sound of majority. Asylum in North. Why so is that? It's because, I'm no, it's citizenship, it's because of education, it's because of, you know, this is just too hard. But it's also because you've got a political elite uh, yeah. who's saying that, you know, that's not going to happen. You've already voted and you only get one bite of the cherry. Mm. That's not democracy. Democracy, this really great British prime minister says, there's no finality in politics. Politics always goes on. It's not sort of like we draw two lines under it and that's fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, politics is always a moving thing. You know, just because you have a vote does not mean the end of it. That's just like for the time being. Mm-hmm. And we're into yeah, the- for now and yeah. just like changing leadership. Along the lines of what uh, what we can do, 
I would like to just uh, throw this in. Um, there are definitely ebbs and flows of democracy. And as I mentioned, the 30 years uh, is definitely not, not enough. Uh, it's not so sustainable. It's fragile. Uh, and there is uh, absolute need for a uh, constantly fight for it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not new. It's just that in practice, it seems that it's overlooked. Uh, the, and I w- it would be um, very important to bring back not only institutions, but soft power. Mm. And so define soft power, because I'm not sure all of our listeners understand that. Um, for example, having a big country, a strategic partner for Romania, like the United States, who is always present to direct different ideas or to influence or, or mm. to show model examples, um, this was always important. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this presence of the, the, the soft power of the models, of okay. the institutional models, of the models of, of value and so on, this has dwindled uh, in the last years. Um, and this is not good because uh, you, need, uh, you need some sort of models. You need, um, you need things to look up to. You need uh, your enemies to not be able to say, oh, uh, but look at the U.S. They're not doing that great either. They're just like us. And I'm quoting mm. uh, uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. So this is a really important point. Joseph Nye defines soft power as the, as the powerfulness from being attractive. So mm. what gives the United States power in Romania and powerful to have positive influence mm. is that it's an attractive place. It's a role model. Not that it's a military power mm. or that it's an economic power on which you're dependent or, or you feel threatened. Mm. But it's a place that's quite attractive to point at and say, look, these are we good practices. Mm. And, and Veronica's pointing out the tragedy of change here in the United this States is, mm-hmm. is that that's diminishing. Mm. The ability to point to good role models from the free country, the democratic mm-hmm. example. And using your, your leverage as well. So it's, it's interesting if we go back just, you know, 30 years, Mexico is now a relatively established democracy. Mm-hmm. Mexico was effectively a one-party state from the 1920s until the 1990s. Then increasingly Mexican elites would start to go to American universities. They would come back and say they've got democracy, they've got many parties. So people coming from, so for example, there are very few Russians who study in the West now, which is a mm-hmm. problem. So if people go to different countries, they would learn those things. But also when they negotiated the original NAFTA thing, then mm-hmm. the Americans would say, well, we're happy to deal with you. However, you need to get your house in order. You need to do all these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're not going to deal with you. So American was, America and Canada were saying, well, there's a conditionality. If you want to have an after agreement, you need to have a pluralist system. So they used their leverage in a way that uh, okay. they're using now. And the European Union used it in the same way when countries, and they use it now. If you want to join the EU, you need to sign up to certain things. The problem is that there are some countries that signed up to that and then they reneged on their promises. And that's the problem we have in European Union at the moment. Mm-hmm. A, slight, uh, a slight warning, if, if it's possible to call it a warning, would be that most likely it's going to get worse before mm-hmm. it gets better. So in the context of the current democratic institutions uh, that are being um, um, challenged in, in Central and Eastern Europe, it might get worse for a while because the elites are reacting to the demands for uh, more democracy, for more inclusion in the European Union, for uh, respect of, of different values than uh, the ones that would they would benefit for personally. 
Um, so they will react and they will continue to challenge uh, the rule of law and the, uh, the institutions that are a constraint on their behavior. Uh, so they, uh, it will get uh, a bit worse, but that's why it's extremely important to pay attention mm-hmm. to what is happening in the region and to make sure that uh, we've got to remain aware and uh, the citizens, the voting citizens, are aware of the major changes that are happening. They do protest, they express their concerns in different ways, but they are also so disenchanted and that it is definitely the situation in which challenger parties can uh, mm. can come to okay. form. Going back to what you said earlier, Mike, just the awareness that democracies are unstable, and yet in another way it's the instability that allows them to be sustainable. So the, the, their instability make them vital. You know, mm-hmm. we shouldn't... I think this is quite an important point. The student revolts in the 60s, which led some commentators to talk about the the suicidal nature of mm-hmm. democracy mm-hmm. being too democratic. Now, when when the students were on the street in the 60s, this was a vital part of mm-hmm. a, a growing and consolidation of democracy. And as, as Veronica was saying, we've done this for 300 years, you know, not 30 years. And so these mm-hmm. things have to happen. But the risks are very high. And that's why we're interested... You know my passions anyway, Maury, that the International Leadership Association with whom I'm associated has a responsibility to take discussions and scholarship around mm-hmm. leadership mm-hmm. to apply to these sorts of issues. You can't have an elephant in the room. You can't say, yeah. say that's fine, we can talk about leadership. <laughs> leadership for what? Is leadership in a world of turbulence, in mm-hmm. a world where the systems we know are better systems than others for coexistence, mm-hmm. For, mm-hmm. for social participation, are struggling? and are being challenged. They're being challenged by elites who don't get their instant gratification from them. They're being challenged by, by capitalism that doesn't redistribute towards the very wealthy, mm-hmm. by all sorts of things. So it, the inherent stability, as you rightly say, is part of its vitality, but it also is a risk that we need to monitor and manage. Part of leadership should be to help people keep their awareness sharp, keep their strategies clear. This is worth nurturing and worth keeping and worth preserving, however difficult. Not despair that just because a democratic decision brings, um, you know, an abhorrent result, and some do. Some and people some do. for terrible things to happen, and it's democratic. Don't give up the system because of that. Just work on going back and, and reforming and, and, and reforming views. Mm. The decision of the United Kingdom, this is a personal view, of course, to leave the European Union is, is an absurd decision <laughs> in a world that's so interdependent and so interconnected. Right. Right. It's proved so difficult to do, which is an example. So do we just sit back and say, well, that's a democratic result? No, but we don't at the same time say it's the wrong result, so we have to use democracy to change the result. We don't have to do that either. Well, and you also don't have to get rid of democracy. No. It precisely. If there's one thing you need, is not less democracy, but more. But more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as um, um, Catherine Taylor Scott, uh, who was honoured by the uh, ILA uh, this year, said, we need the dedication to reality is essential to our mental health. Yeah. And I do believe that uh, the voting people who listen to all these, uh, uh, the selling of illusions that has been going mm-hmm. for the last mm-hmm. years, will not be able to do this. Uh, indefinitely. There will be uh, a backlash. Yeah. We are with Mike and Veronica continuing the conversations about what to do with democracy on the run.
Right. Well, um, I was going to uh, to make this point about the very important resistance to disengagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may you may be disenchanted by the leaders. You have to differentiate, and the people will have to differentiate between the leaders and the institutions that they populate temporarily. So it's not the institutions that to disappoint necessarily, or mm-hmm. they can be reformed. That uh, of course. Uh, but it's the people that populate them mm-hmm. uh, that can be changed and they are not going to be there forever. So resistance mm-hmm. to disengagement means uh, showing up to vote. Yeah, Eastern, Central and Eastern European have very low voter turnout. Oh, really? Okay. They do. Uh, even though there are young democracies, mm-hmm. and you would, there was a begin in the beginning of the night mm-hmm. and people would turn out to vote. Now, the feeling is that it's all the same. Okay, so, so it doesn't matter why bother. Why bother? So they uh, they're not bothered. We are not bothered anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, of course, plays very well for those who uh, can continue unchallenged in their in their way of doing things. Uh, so this would definitely be one thing. And then again, uh, getting involved into politics, getting involved mm-hmm. into parties, political parties. Uh, who have such a bad reputation, but they shouldn't have such mm-hmm. a bad reputation mm-hmm. because we have not invented anything better than yeah. multi-party systems mm-hmm. in order to uh, deliver state governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so getting involved into parties is um, is definitely something that uh, younger people should do more. And older people. Yes, uh, I'm thinking about younger people because they are the the least uh, are engaged, engaged. Okay. Um, and uh, they are not um, uh, targeted, if I can say, mm-hmm. by the uh, mm-hmm. human resources uh, mm-hmm. research team of parties. Uh, it's very difficult to, to enter a political party. Sure, it's, uh, this, can, this can definitely challenge the status quo. Okay, so this resistance to disengagement, I think, is mm-hmm. a really important thing. And um, there's a couple of things. For leadership generally, why do we think of leaders as being those who are important, who are big, who are visible, who are, who are out in front? This notion is not helpful. Everybody can be a leader here, lead by example. There are, there's some contemporary, very powerful examples. Okay. The Me Too movement. Yes. Let me introduce it as a man. Mm-hmm. The most appalling behavior by men goes on forever, it seems. It's just no accountability a sense of entitlement to treat women in the way that they do. But what happens is that there is somebody somewhere, however small, however insignificant, however much a victim, that doesn't dwell in their victimhood, but says, enough's enough, I'm immobilized, I will speak out. And what happens is an endemic of confidence, which is my second point. Anyone can be a leader. But can we generate an epidemic of confidence, of confidence building that says, well, I can do that too. Mm-hmm. Me too. Now, the me too is not just about sexual harassment of women. It can be applied to all sorts of other things. How unfair is it that one in four children in Britain are born into poverty in 2018? That's wrong. Mm-hmm. So we need a me too movement for that. Yes. Because it's not acceptable. And that's what Veronica is talking about in terms of mobilizing and resisting disengagement. And how do we get young people involved in democracy, in the democratic institutions? How do we get them to vote? They have to do it if they feel it makes a difference to them. 
They're as self-centered as their elders mm-hmm. in the Senate, but they have huge stakes, much greater stakes than their elders. The decision on Brexit, for example, mm-hmm. will impact upon people who are currently at the decision to leave the European Union, 15 or 60-year-olds didn't even have the vote, and yet it'll be their lives that are affected dramatically. Significantly, Significantly. yeah. Significantly. Yep. Now, two years it's taken us to try and leave, they've become 18-year-olds and voting. How can mm-hmm. we get a model in which we get these people to participate and ring and, and keep their high levels of engagement? So the, the levels of apathy among young people, we could look at separately and study mm-hmm. and understand why and change that. Mm-hmm. But it's a huge problem, I think, and a huge challenge. You know, I, I think I was, I've spoken before about the research I've done in Mongolia. This is a very different place. It's a long way away. This is a country where there are more horses than people. But a country also with a very healthy liberal democratic model in its post-Soviet years. It has more political parties, it has communities that have engaged. But you know what happens there because of a long history of, of mistrust of politicians is that when your person that you create and support in a political party becomes a politician, people stop trusting them. Oh, interesting. It's so, it's, so it's the, the profession of politics yeah. that we distrust, so even though that guy's my neighbor. Exactly, well, he's your selected party. But once you understand the drivers that need to be changed, you can go and do So you need to invest in programs that remove or reduce this anxiety about politicians. You need to put different systems of accountability, transparency, of reporting. You need to introduce things like, that we take for granted sometimes in parts of the UK, surgeries, when you hold your member of parliament to account, when he has to come and speak at your level, you don't have to go to some rarefied, elevated level in the parliament. So I think scholars, practitioners, policy makers, those concerned with the quality of leadership can do an awful lot once you analyze the nature of the problem, the nature of the challenge, and focus on the challenge, not on the system. Don't dismantle the system or give up on it. Make it a better one. Yeah, I was going to say make it better. Yeah. Yeah, that, that seems like what I'm hearing both of you saying is, well, the system is flawed, or if you define flawed as we get results that we wish we hadn't, then it's it has shortcomings. But if if my spouse had a shortcoming, I wouldn't throw the spouse out. Depends on the shortcoming, maybe. But in some cases, on the I think uh, it, uh, things look um, tend to look grim because, of course, we focus on that one flaw instead of seeing the whole qualities of the mm-hmm. false puffs mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even as commentators, as observers, um, as policy makers, there is so much positive that we can mm-hmm. also focus on and break this bubble of uh, negative uh, talking mm-hmm. about uh, the flaws of, of the democratic mm-hmm. system, the flaws of the European Union mm-hmm. that have led to Brexit or that could potentially lead to um, a, a more anti-European sentiment even in the new countries mm-hmm. because all the talk that we hear is about the negative aspects which makes sense because that's what you want to improve and that's what you want to point at. At a point in time yes. in a specific place. But if we look at the arc of history, we are so much better off now than we have been. Absolutely. And the Romanians and Hungarians and Polish people who live in a pre-accession, uh, pre-EU accession country, the situation uh, um, is much better. 
This is uncontestable on all indicators of economy, of, of mobility, of education, of literacy. Everything is better. But this is not promoted enough. And the EU mm-hmm. doesn't promote itself also enough as the uh, peacemaker that it is, as the uh, democracy builder that it is, as the uh, uh, improver of, of, dem- of democratic life. So, Ron, you just made a, a very strong point that reminded me about my, my worry about bubbles. Mm-hmm. So let me finish on this instead. <laughs> We're here at the ILA conference, you know, 1,100 people stood and applauded because, you know, Veronica and Matt and others, the panel mm-hmm. was, was mm-hmm. very well received. But this has a danger of being a bubble. We have a bubble of believers. And the other challenge we have to do is go from places such as these, from mm-hmm. people who nod in agreement and understand the issues and proselytize elsewhere. There's many people who are not here. We're, you know, hugely pleased that we have a large number of of delegates here and very engaging now, but they're only a real splash in a pond. You know, we have to get mm-hmm. out and we have to break down the bubble. So this bubble understands it. This bubble understands the issue, the threat to mm-hmm. democracy mm-hmm. and what we can do. But how often does it bounce into other bubbles and grow mm-hmm. and bounce into further, you know, in the same way that soaps do? Which is why we are very thankful <laughs> for your invitation. Well, and I'm sure grateful that you made the time to do this. So let's summarize some of the points because I want to make sure everyone walks away from this with a very clear sense of what what you're advocating and if there is a call to action, what do you want people to do? Because we can talk about it, but there are things to do to address the challenges. So I think we need to be, if I may start, Mm -hmm. be realistic about the challenges that the system has problems. But don't run away from the system. Mm-hmm. So the Mussolini or the Trump view about draining the swamp is probably the wrong approach. The swamp exists. Mm-hmm. Let's make it a more palatable swamp. Let's not drain it because that means you're going to take it away completely. I know that's, that miserable won't run forever. <laughs> so the first thing to do is to say that there are imperfections, but don't give up on the system because okay. let's have confidence that the system is better than anything else being mm-hmm. discovered. So let's look at what makes it sticky, what makes it grumpy, what makes it a system that doesn't deliver to everyone, mm-hmm. what makes it that people so easily disengage and don't get involved. Don't give up on politics just because politics has a bad name. That's Correct. a very important message. I yeah, think. I think that's, that's critical. Yeah. So so stay each of us as stay citizens, in the game. stay in the game. Stay in the game. And don't throw out the system. Yeah. If the system is not perfect, Frankly, the fact that half of the population is pleased with the outcome and half is displeased may mean a sign of success because all the people with the wide variety of humans aren't going to be pleased. And the second thing for me is time profile. Mm -hmm. Forget about now. Now is a static moment in time, moment in history. Actually, Mm -hmm. we've got a passage of time to worry about. So let's, let's encourage people to think in bigger time periods, bigger cracks, okay. whether that's five years or ten years. So it's pretty dire now. That doesn't mean it will always be dire for the next five to ten years. So time periods are also important. I think that's a great point. We have elected officials in each of our countries, some of whom we are not pleased with, and that we get to vote them out. I would like to add that it's absolutely necessary to be fact-driven and not emotionally driven mm-hmm. in our understanding of the situation. Mm-hmm. Of course, everything impacts our life, 
but consequently we should tell ourselves that all this negative uh, discourse that we see, mm -hmm. uh, this is not normal. We have to constantly tell ourselves that this is not normal. We are getting accustomed with a type of rhetoric and a type of uh, look, uh, um, uh, pointing towards our lives that uh, just does not allow us to see the positive. So, mm -hmm. uh, yes, absolutely. The, the, I can understand the emotion, but it is incremental to be fact-driven in our understanding of the situation. I think I want to build on that fact-driven, but standing back and looking at the context, we are so much better off. Back to, if I watched the news this morning, you would think that we would not make it till this afternoon. And yet... Breaking news and the world. <laughs> yes, we're living with that, and this is not normal. And it's on my phone. I can't even... When I log on, it's there. I'm sure there's a way to take it off. But that's the world we all inhabit. And the more sensationalist, the more likely it is to pop up on my phone. So there are some fundamentals, more. You're right. I absolutely share your view. We are on, on aggregate, at the macro level, mm -hmm. far better off in health terms, in child mortality rates, poverty rates globally. But it's not fairly and evenly distributed. And we, have, yeah. we are more unequal now than we've ever been. And these are sowing the seeds of dissent. You can't expect people to engage if they mm -hmm. feel, and if they are, completely left behind by the progress that we're acknowledging. Mm -hmm. So there are some yeah. fundamentals that we have yeah. to address. I agree. And so the unevenness is getting bigger, and the poverty is extending again. I often make the point, you know, in 2016, the International Red Cross distributed food parcels in my country, the United Kingdom. Not in Sub-Saharan Africa or in Ethiopia or in or in Asia or among the uh, Myanmar Muslims, but in Britain. That's a statement. That's what is going wrong with the international. Why would it? Why would you divert food aid from places that we know are savagely poor and undernourished and divert it to a rich Western country? There's something going on. And these things will come and bite us, and they will be the reason that the democratic systems are challenged. And because people will look at the system and blame the system for that, when there may be other drivers that we need to understand. So as much as we've, we've had a very welcome conversation, we always do with you, Mike, <laughs> there are many other things. It is highly complex. And that's why it's worth bringing these agendas to conferences such as this, and worth bringing it to your program. So as we're closing, for our listeners, this is absolutely a call to action. And what I'd like to invite our guests to consider is let's do something quarterly that, yeah. that continues this dialogue. Because I think there's a lot more to, to consider for us and for the body of leaders who tune in and think about these topics and take action themselves and influence the thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that, that this ripples through. I think it'd be great. I think this dialogue has to be a continuous one and not, as I said before, just a moment in time when we're together. Thank you both. And for our listeners, this is absolutely an invitation to step into the conversation. Have a critical attitude. And have a critical attitude. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.